Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through, Lord Je- through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks, Libby. Thanks for uh, reading those wonderful verses to us. If you do have your Bibles, please stay with uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, 1 to 11. We're going to be looking at uh, that fairly extensively this morning. Just before we start, I need to hook up my device. So. Let's just pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity once again to look at your word, to be instructed by your spirit, uh, to be convicted, to be transformed. Father, as Mike prayed, uh, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. Did you know this week uh, it was quite a momentous week in the history of Australia? No, you didn't. Clearly not. Have you been listening to the news throughout this week? What happened this week that that, um, hasn't set us apart from any other nation, but it was kind of significant? You obviously don't know. That's okay. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Do you realise that this week was the 60th anniversary of TV broadcasting in Australia. 60th anniversary. So I'm guessing for most of us in this congregation, we've never known a life without a television. All right? We have never known a time where a a TV hasn't been in our living rooms or in our bedrooms or even lately on your fridge. I was in the States recently and I rolled up to pump gas. That's what you do in the States, you pump gas, all right? You know the powers. And here, as I was pumping gas, I had a television screen telling me the latest sports news. So it's only been 60 years, it's only been six decades. You know, we've moved from the, the beautiful old black and white to, to who had a Technicolor television? Go on, put your hands up. Who had a Technicolor television? Yes, yes, 26 inch, and probably 26 inches deep. Technicolor, the first colour television set. Yeah, probably a thorn or a pie, 
Those brands recognised here? No, obviously not. That was obviously in his own thing. That's okay. But now we have flat screens. We, um, we have TVs that can cover your entire wall. So as I thought about this fact, I was thinking, well, what impact has that particular technology had on us as a society? What has 60 years of looking at a television screen had on us as a society? Has it improved us socially or has it made us more antisocial? Has it made us read more or read less? Outside those issues, I think one of the conclusions that I came to was that the TV, in a, a very unique way, has connected us globally. In a very unique way, we've been able to see pictures from the other side of the world in real time and understand what's going on. Now, through this past 60 years, we've witnessed many tragedies and many triumphs. We've seen men walking on the moon. We've seen the fall of the Berlin Wall. We've seen royal weddings. We've seen royal divorces. We've seen wars firsthand and in real time. I, I, don't, I can't get the image of Desert Storm out of my mind, the very first one. It was like a video game. The footage that we were getting in real time of, of that particular war. We have observed horrific humanitarian crises through our television sets. We've seen the result of man's hatred towards his brother. So without doubt I can conclude, I think, that uh, we have seen the world in a way that we would never have seen without the television set. We've been exposed to the suffering within this world. We've been exposed to the, a world who's encased in the, in the clutches of sin. And as a generation, we've been exposed to this like no other generation before us. It's not only globally, but individually. I think uh, as followers of Christ, we are consistently exposed to, to suffering and, and trials on a personal level. We live in a fallen world, folks. That's the state of the world we live in, so we have to deal with those things. We have to deal with sickness. We, need, we have to deal with the loss of loved ones. We have to deal with untimely health issues. We have to deal with years and years of lack of reconciliation between family members because of bitterness and conflict. Anyone who said that the Christian life would be all roses hasn't read the scripture. Because folks, as a Christian, we live in a world that is suffering, but we also live amongst the people who are suffering. But I guess the real question is, as followers of Christ, how do we remain joyful 
in the midst of the suffering. You see, you have the fruit of the Spirit, right? And, and the Word tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is constantly at work within us through His Holy Spirit. Constantly developing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. That's what the Spirit's doing within us. But, but you know, it's hard to be joyful at times, isn't it? It's incredibly hard to be joyful. We had that experience this week. Uh, you know, a lot of you have seen our beautiful puppy dog, right? Border Collies, best dogs in the world, all right? And, and the glory of the Border Collie when it runs around is normally its tail sticking up in the end and waving and, and, and flapping, etc., right? Well, our Border Collie got a, a tumour on her tail, so she no longer has a tail. And, you know, so we've had to, we've had to deal with that. And, and do we deal with that? In a, in a, it's, a, it's a silly example, but it's, it is an example. How are we joyful in that type of situation that life throws you at, at you? How does the Spirit of God move you to be thankful? How does the Spirit of God move you to teach you a lesson? Even though you think the world is just falling around, down about you. So when our health is affected or our financial stability or our relationships, what does the Word of God tell us about that? What should our response be? What should be our response when persecution arises in the office because you've stood up for the truth? You've proclaimed Christ. You haven't compromised on your beliefs or your faith. What is it to be joyful when your workmates scoff and mock and ridicule you because of your faith? This is an important thing because this is the question that's before us today. What does it mean to be joyful? What does it mean to be a joyful church in a suffering world? You see, I think as, as followers of Christ, we, we have not been baptized into lemon juice. I see far too many Christians today that look as though they've been baptised into lemon juice. We've been baptised into the love of Christ. And that should fill our hearts with joy so we can share that love with one another. As we've read this morning, we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Because I think Romans 5 gives us a, a wonderful template for what it means to live a joyful Christian life. We're going to spend some time looking through these wonderful verses, the 11 verses of Romans 5. Thanks, Libs, for, for reading these, and we'll just make comment as we go through. You see, Romans 5 is almost like a little wee summary statement. Paul has been arguing to the church at Rome, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be right with God? And he's, he's made these observations, well, there's nothing in yourself that can make you right with God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. It's only through the power of Christ that, that you can be justified. And he starts in 5.1 by using the statement, therefore, since we have been justified, it's a statement of fact. It's, what does justified mean? Well, 
Justified means that you are declared in a legal sense, like a, a judge before a jury, you are declared in a legal sense that you are not guilty. You are right. It tells us how we have been justified. It's through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, one of, one of the wonderful, wonderful fruits of this justification is that you have peace with God. And this is what this verse tells us. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Does that fill your heart with joy? Do you experience peace with God? These are good questions because the, the Word of God here tells us that when we are His, when we are, have placed our faith and trust in Christ and His, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit, His atoning sacrifice, I'll explain that term in a little bit of time, that that gives us a great deal of peace. Actually, the greatest peace that a soul can have. It takes you beyond anxiety for the day because you realize that you are his. And you're at peace with God and, and your sin no longer is counted against you. He further goes on and says, okay, what does this peace look like? You have been justified, you have peace. And then it says, well, there's a couple of other things that go on here in verse 2. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we are saved. So you and I, as, as followers of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you stand in the grace of Christ. You don't have to do anything to earn merit with God. You stand in His grace and in His mercy and in His love. That's the depth of justification. This is a marvelous truth of the Christian gospel. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Your justification is given to you by God as a gift of grace by God and you can stand in that and walk in that grace on a daily basis. And that provides great peace. And as a result of this, this standing in grace, we can rejoice in the hope of God. If you're a if you're a, a note taker, if you're a, a scribbler on your Bible, I would circle we rejoice. In this passage, it occurs on several occasions. Here in verse 2 and verse 3 and then, then following in verse 11. It is a key to understanding what, what our attitude and our action in this world should be. You see, it's the whole mantra of all that God has done. He has justified us. He has granted us peace. He's a, we've attained access by faith into his grace. For all God has done, our response, 
we rejoice. We rejoice and, and not only do we rejoice because the rejoicing gives us a hope. As we rejoice, as we contemplate, as we think about our new position in Jesus, we have this wonderful hope that God will provide it all. Yeah, so what is it? I'm just going to go back a bit. I'm just going to think, well, let's understand a little bit more about what it means to be justified. It's okay. Justified is just one of the words that is used in the New Testament for atonement. Atonement's an Old Testament word. And we have in the New Testament four picture words about what it means to now experience the love of God. We have redemption is one. We have propitiation. These are these are big words. We have reconciliation and we have justification. We will look at, specifically today, reconciliation and justification because that's what the passage is dealing with. But I wanted to give you a bit of a broader understanding. What does it mean to be, to be justified? And what do these images mean? These are the images that are used by the New Testament. You re, see, redemption has this whole image of being in a slave market and being bought back by a master. We have... Propitiation is a, an image about the temple shrine and, and, and the wrath of God being satisfied as, a, as a, a sacrificing type offering. Reconciliation has a, a theme about a battlefield or, or in the home and it's got this, this, this sense that when you are reconciled to someone, the battle is over and, and uh, you, you, the hostility has been removed. And you have justification. It's a, it's a courtroom type picture. And it's about removing guilt. It's about um, Christ taking your sin and giving him your righteousness. See, they're the, they're the, the, the metaphors, the pictures that the New Testament uses for, for what it means to be atoned, what it means to be right before God. And each of these pictures has a need, you see, like, when you're redeemed, you need to be freed from the slavery of sin. When you're propitiated, you need to be, God's wrath needs to be satisfied. When it's reconciliation, hostility needs to be removed. And when it's justification, guilt needs to be removed. You see, God initiates all these things. And that is wonderful, isn't it? So we, if we try to justify ourselves, if we try to reconcile ourselves or redeem ourselves, it all becomes just a fruitless exercise. Because there's no good in us. So God initiates, uh, he pays the price through Christ's blood. He accepts the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. 
He makes peace with us through the process of reconciliation through the blood of Christ. And he declares us innocent through the blood of Christ. So to be justified is not justified, to be atoned for together. And I reckon that's why the New Testament writers grab these four pictures to try and explain our new position in Christ. So I hope that's helpful because I think as we think about we have been justified, we have peace with God, we have obtained access by faith into his grace. I think as you think about that, this is the picture. If you have followed Christ and, and you've made him Lord of your life, this is the thing that's happened to you. You're freed from the slavery of sin. God's, God's wrath will never touch you. You're removed from hostility and your guilt is removed. All through the blood of Christ. But um, Paul in these verses gives us a little bit more. He says, yes, you have been justified. Yes, you have peace with God. Yes, you have attained access by faith. And you stand in this grace. You stand in the grace. And standing in grace has this idea of permanence, of standing firm and being immovable. That cannot be taken away from us. You see, when you look at these verses, you see a dying Saviour brings us into God's grace. And a living Saviour keeps us in his grace. I want you to remember that. A dying Saviour brings us into God's grace. And a living Saviour keeps us in this grace. And this is the reason to rejoice. And then it gives us... Verse 3 and 4 and 5, I'm just going to read them to you. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So that's life, folks. This is life in a nutshell. We rejoice in our sufferings. Who here rejoices in their sufferings? Come on, let's be a bit honest here. It's not a normal response, is it, to say, I am going to suffer today, therefore I am going to rejoice. That's not something normally we like to do. We normally probably go and pout in a corner or we go and feel sorry for ourselves and we, we, we just do not rejoice in sufferings. But Paul here is trying to give us a different view. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering in, um, produces endurance. You see, the reason for suffering, the reason for the issues we go on in life is to produce an endurance. The capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. Endurance also could be patience. Endurance is fortitude, it's steadfastness, it's, uh, you know, it's just straight perseverance. 
for instance, yesterday, uh, my youngest daughter, Em, said, hey, Dad, let's go and do the thousand steps. I've never done the thousand steps. I probably will never do it again. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, yeah, thousand steps, that can't be that difficult. Surely, can't be that difficult. A little bit of an incline, yeah, no problems. Folks, I was suffering and I was enduring. The lungs were bursting. But in the back of my mind, I thought, she's not going to beat me. She's not going to beat me. She's not going to beat me. So um, we made it. I'm not going to tell you who won, but we made it. Life is, is a greater form of endurance than that, than just a thousand steps. And the things in life that we come across, God wants to use those to enhance our character, to enable us to turn back and say to God, I rejoice in this situation, even though I may not understand what's going on. To say to the Lord, this is a long trial, but your promises are longer. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that I have a hope. A hope that you have declared me righteous. See, it, put thing, it puts things into perspective when you consider what Christ has done on your behalf. And that's why he gives these instructions to rejoice in your suffering, which produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. I'm sure you've heard many stories of rejoicing and suffering. I want to share one story with you, and this is from very, very early in Christendom. It's a fellow by the name of Polycarp. Now, that's an unusual name, but Polycarp was, he was between John the Apostle and the early church. He was sort of first generation uh, disciple of Christ his life was a life of suffering and he had been brought to a place where they were going to uh, murder him and, and martyr him for his faith and I just want to read to you his testimony as an encouragement of uh, what he thought about the suffering he was about to endure and they did not nail him, but rather they bound him. And he, having put his hands behind him and having bound just like a splendid ram chosen from a great flock for a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering that has been prepared acceptable to God, looking up to heaven, he said, You see, Polycarp, they brought him before a, a throng of people, angry Jews and Christian haters. And they, they said, oh, let's nail him while we burn him. So we're going to nail him to this hunk of wood and at the same time we're going to light a fire underneath him. 
So this is the context on which this, this man is standing before this throng of people. And this is his reply. And he said, Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge about you, God of angels and of powers and of all creation and of the race of the righteous ones who live before you, I bless you because you consider me worthy of this day and hour so that I may receive a share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ to resurrection of life. Eternal both of soul and body by the immortality of the Holy Spirit among whom may I be received before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice just as you, the trustworthy and true God, prepared and revealed beforehand and fulfilled. Because of this and for everything, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved trial, through whom to you, with him and with the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and always and among the coming ages. Amen. And after he sent up the amen and completed his prayer, the men in charge of the fire kindled the fire. The great flame blazed up. That's a really old martyrdom. But you see the heart of joy and suffering. We have modern day martyrs. We've seen those on our television uh, sets as people are beheaded for the sake of Christ. You know, Polycarp understood this passage. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. You see the character that's dripping out of this man's testimony here? His first object was to praise God. Because he had hope. So what about you? What about me? How do we deal with sufferings in our life? How as a church are we joyful in the midst of a suffering world? We see things that go on around about us that we we can't comprehend or rationalise. But the question is, as a follower of Christ, how do you go with this stuff here? What's the important thing here as you rejoice in sufferings and you, you endure and you, your character is being produced and you look to the hope that Jesus has given you? You see, the basis of this is that we consistently should be looking to Jesus. We should be consistently reminding ourselves of what he has done for us. That's what produces hope. If you're struggling in these areas, look to Jesus. He has justified you. He has given you peace. He has given you access into his grace. Look to those things. They're incredible. Not only that, 
This hope does not disappoint us. This hope is within us because of God's love. Notice that. That is an incredible verse. The reason that we have a hope, the reason that we can endure sufferings, the reason that we can patiently improve our character is because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts through God's love. What a wonderful God we serve. He does not leave us alone. He he sends a comforter who pours out into our heart his love. And this love of God, contextually, is is God as the subject. It's what God has done for us. However, it also has an objective sense because the love that comes from God and that this is what produces our love for God. And this has been poured to us through his spirit. That's what gives us hope. The spirit of God grabs and works within us through his word. Remember we talked about that last week. Last week, the word of God is the catalyst for developing the truth of God in our hearts. And the Spirit of God takes that and refines us, refines us through our sufferings, refines us through character development, and gives us hope that's based on God's love. And then he gives us an example of the greatest act of love of all time, verse 6, 7, and 8. He just says, look, you were weak, but at the right time Christ died. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're struggling with with having a hope, look at these verses, dwell on these verses, meditate on these things. That God's love is so great that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Why? So we could be atoned for so we could have an atonement, so we could be guiltless before a holy God, innocent and reconciled. And then he summarizes it in the final three verses. Since therefore, it's a summary statement again, we have been justified. He goes back to the, the original statement. Folks, we're justified. By his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now then, we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, or much more, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul uses a wonderful technique here. He uses a, a greater to lesser argument. Pick this up here as you look at the verses. He uses a greater argument and then says, well, since this greater argument is so true, then this also must be right. So I'll give you an example. The first part of the greater argument is you are declared righteous. You are justified by the shedding of Christ's blood. Verse 9, since that has happened, 
Therefore, so much more, this is so true, it is far more certain that we'll be saved from God's future wrath. So it's a greater to lesser. It's a wonderful argument that we have been saved through Christ, and because of that, the wrath is not going to touch you. God's wrath will not touch. And then he uses it again. You were enemies. And we were reconciled by the death of his son. And since that is true, that's the greater argument, how much more will be saved through his life? Because Christ is risen, you also will rise. A future hope. And he summarizes it. Because of these things, and he, he really, all he has done is he, he's restated in a more concise way. Because of these things, much more than that, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation brings peace. And we rejoice in that fact. So if I ask you the question, what does it mean to be joyful in a suffering world? How would you respond to this text? How would you respond? I would hope you respond by saying, okay, for me to be joyful, I need to understand what I've been saved from. I need to understand the certainty that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has given me life. It's given me access into his very grace. And that is my hope. So whatever promises he has promised will come true. How does that play out in the, in the balance of life? Well, it plays out in, in every area of life. It should play out when you are suffering. When you are suffering, you should look to the fact that you've been justified. You've been reconciled. You have peace with God. You should realize that this suffering is for your own good, and that's a hard thing to take on at the time, is it not? That's what the Word of God tells us. This suffering produces endurance. It enables us to press on. It enables us to step out in faith. It enables us at a difficult time to tell somebody about Christ. It enables us at a difficult time to comfort and share with somebody else who is suffering the love of Christ. Produces this endurance. And it produces character. And what you find with character is once you have been in the seasons of life and, and you have gone through a certain situation, when that situation occurs again, God's grace floods in. And you realize, hey, this is no problems at all. I'm sure if I was ever stupid enough to do a thousand steps again, that I would find that it would be a little bit easier than it was yesterday. Probably not, but you know, there you go. But with um, 
the fruit of the Spirit that works in our lives to produce this endurance and produce this character when you rub up against that particular issue again and again and again. God's grace enables you to, to deal with that in a way that is remarkable. And this character produces hope. So I trust your hope is in the glory of God. This is what this is about. When you struggle in life, when for us to be joyful in this life, our hope has to be anchored to the anchor of our soul. And that's Christ himself. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I think the hymn writer was impacted deeply by this portion of scripture. Because that's what it's saying. Your hope is built on Christ alone and the fact that he has justified you. This should give us joy. Let's not live like baptized lemon Christians. Let's live with the joy that's in our hearts because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts to display the love of God. Cry out to him today. Meditate on these words this week. I ask you to to grab these verses and think through them. And say, Lord, how can you develop my hope? Because that's the heart of being joyful in a suffering world. Invite the music team up and uh, we'll continue.